Before you listen to this podcast, we'd like to issue a warning, particularly to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners. This episode includes references to Indigenous people who are no longer with us. Some people might find the content of this episode distressing. And my father, he was part of the Royal Australian Garrison Artillery here in Australia, part of the the homeland protection. My father and my uncle went to a local pub and they were going to have a beer to celebrate the life of their older brother who had just been killed in battle. So the two men went into a pub in uniform and the bartender said to my father, he said, mate, you can stay here and have a beer, but you tell your black mate to get out and drink where all the blacks drink. How can you stay in a system for so long knowing that your father and your uncle were kicked out of a pub? I've been asked that question. And I've got an answer for that question. From Uniting, this is My Life at War, a six-part series featuring first-hand experiences of the everyday Australians who served in World War II. We spent the last year capturing these stories because we believe they need to be told. Each week, hear from some of our last remaining veterans and war historian David Wilson as we follow their journey through World War II. I'm Jefferson Spratt. And I'm Lee Taylor. Part 5, Indigenous Soldiers. So when you think back about your dad, um, what what is what's the key attributes that you really uh, admired about your dad? Are we, are we recording? Are we? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Sure. I. Oh, sorry. I didn't realise. Whatever you want. Yeah. yeah. No well, I'm just thinking. There's so many. I think the first thing is his commitment. I can't ever remember him missing work. This is Colin Watergo. I'm a very proud Bunjalung man, a very proud Torres Strait Islander, a very proud descendant of the South Sea Islands, and a very proud um, ex-serving Australian soldier and veteran. Colin recently retired after 43 years of service in the Australian Army. I'm a former uh, Warrant Officer Class 1 in the Royal Regiment of Australian Artillery. He's also been a part of the Defence Forces Indigenous Affairs Youth Programme and has been awarded the Medal of the Order of Australia. But he tells us... One of my greatest um, highlights of my career is to do with my uniform, just to wear the same one that Dad wore, and I'll talk about that. Colin, or Cole, is a short, stocky man with a salt and pepper military buzz cut. He has a warm smile and is extremely hospitable kindly offering us tea as we step through the door. His house is a museum of military memorabilia collected from his four decades of service. Colin tells us the story of his father, Colin Watigo Sr., who served alongside his father and two brothers during World War II. It's a story that acknowledges the warrior spirit. And above all, Colin tells us, it's a story of how his ancestors paved the way for him and other Indigenous soldiers. My dad had a long history with military history. 
from the men before him uh, because his dad, my grandfather, served in World War I. But when my grandfather went to war, he went with his older brother and his brother-in-law, the three of them, all enlisted. And, and they did go over to the Great War. Now, the other thing about my dad, he had two other brothers that were older than him who also served. In World War II, my grandfather signed up again. So serving at the same time would have been four men from the same family, my grandfather, his oldest son, and his two youngest sons. And one of them was my dad. I asked Colin, back then, why would Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people fight for a country that didn't recognise them as Australian citizens, especially four men from the same family? Why did any man do that, I think? They would have had other reasons. Some might have done it for money, and, and why not? Because back in the day when, uh, particularly our Aboriginal men, they were getting good money. But you see, family is really important to mob. It's a sense of pride. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not even about pride. It's about duty. Why would you not want to protect your family? I think that's the spirit of our warriors. And these men were warriors. We asked David Wilson, our war historian, were there any restrictions preventing Indigenous men from enlisting? Yes, this is uh, an extremely complex matter in dealing with Indigenous service. The official policy at the beginning of the war was that a man had to be of substantial European origin in order to enlist. But um, many Aboriginal men managed to slip through the system. And sometimes this depended on where they were enlisting, uh, who was actually doing their paperwork, and whether they followed the uh, policy to the letter of the law. So similar to what we heard in episode one, these men found a way of getting around the system? Yes. Well, firstly, there was the confusion with the application of the policy. But another method was to claim a different nationality. Uh, this was a common way of uh, getting through the system. And they did this because they wanted to serve and they wanted to protect Australia. Okay. So just to recap, here are all the people from Colin's family who enlisted into the army. There's Uncle Vince... He's deployed to North Africa. Murray Watago, that's Cole's grandfather. He's unable to be deployed overseas, so he will defend Australia, along with his two sons, Clarence Watago and Colin Watago Sr., Colin's father. Let's keep going. And my father, he was part of the Royal Australian Garrison Artillery here in Australia, part of the, the homeland protection. Their, their responsibility would have been, first and foremost, protecting our coastline. You've got to remember that in World War II, things were really escalating down here. That's why we had so many soldiers and troops deployed to Kokoda and Papua New Guinea, because of the threat coming in from the north. I, I knew that Dad had actually served throughout his tenure at Fort Scratchley, which is in Newcastle. He was a gun number. He was a gunner. He would have done his training and he would have been working on the big guns at uh, Newcastle. These garrisons were built and manned by gunners. So it was a really critical and important role that these garrisons were strategically placed and Fort Scratchley was one of them. So part of their role would have been 24-7 full-time surveillance and observation. Part of their job was to patrol the beaches 
on one of these incidences when Dad was actually doing that as part of his rounds or, you know, his, his duty, that he actually recovered a body from the ocean. Indigenous servicemen served alongside their fellow Australians overseas throughout World War II. However, there were also a number of special units created specifically for the defence of Australia, which included substantial numbers of Indigenous troops. Now, this included various Coast Watcher units which were deployed across the top end of Australia. And there was also a Torres Strait Islander Light Infantry Battalion, And there are also a number of labour units um, employed specifically in the Northern Territory to build airfields and camps. But the most famous unit of all, perhaps, is the Nakaroos, the North Australia Observer Unit. This was a 500-strong unit which deployed in four companies across the top end of Western Australia, the Northern Territory and North Queensland, and they conducted special surveillance patrols to detect any Japanese movement or landings. Colin tells us about how Indigenous soldiers would use their strengths and skills to gain an advantage in combat. For example, in Papua New Guinea, I know of stories where our Aboriginal men would strip down naked and move in through the jungle, and the enemy, who we know were then were the Japanese, would think they were just part of the the local mob, just to get intel. Uh, but they also knew, because of their skills of tracking, they were really gifted men. And now, for a given example, our, our men in the Torres Straits and our men up in the north of Australia, working in those environments, most people wouldn't survive there, and rightly so. But our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men in those environments thrived there, because that's their, that's their country, that's their environment. Australia's Indigenous soldiers made a big contribution to the war effort, with some of them paying the ultimate price. But Colin tells us not everyone gave them the recognition that they deserve. I don't think it's talked about enough about the actual real contribution, the actual real contribution that our forebears have bought. It's about the way people were treated when they come back, and it wasn't the way it should have been. There is a story that it's, it's uh, that my mum shared with me, and and I can only feel for my dad and my uncle. And what had happened is that both men were happened to be back home in their own country during some leave, both in uniform. A telegram arrived to the Kudjan Post Office at the Tweed, and it was advising my grandmother, that her older son had been killed in action at Al Alamein, that's Uncle Vince. He died in battle. My father and my uncle went to a local pub and they were going to have a, a beer to celebrate the life of their older brother who had just been killed in battle at Al Alamein. My father, his skin was darker than mine, but still... Uh, It wasn't black, okay, but he was dark, very dark, but not black. But his brother was black. Uncle was black. So the two men went into a pub in uniform, 
And the bartender said to my father, he said, mate, you can stay here and have a beer, but you tell your black mate to get out and drink where all the blacks drink. Now, I can only imagine how my father and my uncle would have felt. I have been asked this question when I've told, shared that story with someone. How can you stay in a system for so long knowing that your father and your uncle were kicked out of a pub? And I've got an answer for that question. Why they're there in the first place is for the future. It's about securing the future. And, and when I think on that, reflect on that story, and then I look and see what's happening today, we need to acknowledge that that's, that stuff happened, that was real. That needs to be told. But I think we need to learn from that and see where we're going to now. We can only imagine what it's like to, you know, put on a uniform and go to fight a war and put your life on the line and not be able to vote in your own country. How do you, how do you come to terms with that sort of thinking? It didn't stop them. And from an Aboriginal perspective, there was honour in the men did what they needed to do then. Colin tells us that there's one prominent Indigenous figure that really epitomises the honour of stepping up to an insurmountable challenge the first and only Aboriginal fighter pilot in World War II. I talk about one of our great uncles, and I, and I see and I exemplify him as one of our great warriors for our people, and that's Uncle Lenny Waters. When he went to school, once you got to year four, you got, if you were black, you got kicked out of school because you didn't need any education. And, and, and why I consider Uncle Len one of our great warriors is because he wasn't going to accept that. So what he did was he read books to teach himself, uh, but literally on how to read. And then he became, at a time in World War II, when he wanted to step up, he ended up becoming a pilot, recognised as one of our first fighter pilots. It's interesting that the plane that he flew, he didn't name. Black Magic was named by a white fella who flew the plane before he got the Kitty Hawk. And then... He deployed, did 102 sorties, I think it is, 95 missions and whatever the case may be. Then he comes home. And the story that I've heard, he wanted to do something with aircraft, but for whatever reason, he couldn't. That opportunity was not going to be presented to him. What ended up happening with Uncle Len's story is that once his warrior spirit was recognised and acknowledged, others saw the story for what it was. The Royal Australian Air Force painted one of their planes, fighter planes, with Aboriginal colours to acknowledge the warrior spirit of one of our great Aboriginal men. Just one story of many so many, where we really see that warrior spirit. Colin tells us that throughout his own military career, he was often reminded of his father's war service. We wore colour patches on our uniforms. 
And Dad, as I mentioned, was a gunner. I was a gunner. My other brother was a gunner, artillery. And Dad was part of the Royal Australian Garrison Artillery. And they've got a specific colour patch. And interesting for me is um, when I'd come home from Timor, I got posted to Darwin. And I took over the regiment up there as the regimental sergeant major. And one of the highlights I consider, personal highlights of my career over 43 years, um, was to be the RSM of the same unit that wore the same colour patch as my dad. The same colour patch. Very personal for me. Dad would have been very proud. Sometime after the war, Colin's father became a postman and would go on to make a big impression on the community. But this was something that Colin only found out recently at a government conference in Melbourne. He says a stranger walked up to him. Col, he said, you most probably don't remember me. He said, mate, he said, we were neighbours. He gave me his name. And I said, you've got to be kidding me after all these years. And he said, you know, mate, he said, you will never know the influence or the impact your father had on me and my brother. Your dad would come up to our house. Um, everyone called him Uncle Cole. Uncle Cole would come to drop the mail off. And he said, I'd stand there at the letterbox watching him. He said, I used to think as a young boy, how awesome was it? Here's a black man delivering mail. What a job that a black man can get a job as a postman. I think he said he ended up becoming the CEO of Australia Post. Or I can't remember the exact appointment, but he said, your father inspired us, mate. But when I shared that story with mum, it was quite an emotional moment. You see, dad had a heart attack while he was delivering mail. He was actually delivering mail. A street from where I lived. I think for everybody, you can't do all that journey and still not struggle. So I guess the message I'm trying to say is that you don't have to wear a uniform to be a warrior. Your ancestors may or may not have. They may not have worn a uniform, but they were still warriors. So if you can't think of someone who wore a uniform and served, fine. You will have someone in your family that served people, might have been a nurse, might have been a school teacher, whatever contribution that person's made in community. Could be working in a bakery. They're serving community. You don't have to wear a uniform to be a warrior, but you do need to find your warrior spirit. It was a fascinating conversation with Colin that got quite emotional at times. 
And before we left, we asked him, looking back at his family's history in World War II, what does he think about the most? When you are honouring a person, like I honour my dad, you know, I honour my uncle, you know, there's a million thoughts that when you're honouring someone like that, that goes through your head. Um, For example, I I reflect on my dad and straight away I'm thinking of all the things that happened to him. I, I think about my uncle, what he was going through alongside his mates when they're in combat and in war and putting everything out there. But then, then I think about my grandmother and I honour her for her warrior spirit as she dealt with the pain and the trauma and the grief of losing her oldest son. And that's why it's so important that our young people hear those stories. It's not about glorifying war, no way. Uh, As a 43-year serving soldier, a very proud Indigenous man, it's not about it's not about um, glorifying war at all, but it is stepping up and doing what you need to do when you need to do it, um, and and that that's so applicable even today. There's lots of time, lots of things, and lots of reasons why we need to step up. Throughout this series, we have heard the stories from everyday Australians who stepped up, doing what needed to be done. We've heard about the soldier before and during the war, but what about the soldier after the war? Everybody was screaming the war's over. In the big parts in the city, they had huge crowds and they danced and tipped all this paper confetti out of windows of buildings. I was on guard the night I got the message it was over. Mate come up and said, the war's finished. I said, don't be bloody silly. I didn't expect to be there the next day. Even though I was back in Australia, but my mind was still attuned to the fact that you may not be here tomorrow. Well, the friendships were made during the war and became stayed with me until most of them died. A lot of them died. I went to their funerals. I conducted their funerals in a lot of cases. You know, you're just a, like a family. That's next time on the last episode of My Life at War. This series is brought to you by Uniting. It wouldn't have been possible without the incredible veterans currently living in Uniting residential aged care throughout New South Wales and the ACT. You can see their service photos, exclusive videos, and so much more at uniting.org veterans. There's a link in the show notes. To make sure you don't miss an episode, click on the subscribe button in your podcast app. It's free. If you like the episode, please leave us a review. We really appreciate your feedback and it helps other people find the show. This episode was produced by Tribecast Media and was created and written by me, Lee Taylor. And me, Jefferson Spratt. Post-production by Deadset Studios, including story editing from Kelly Reardon and sound design by Bryce Halliday. A special thanks as well to David Wilson, our war historian. <laughs>